Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode is going to feature a paddling couple from the UK. Fee and James Corf are going to join us to share their adventures around both the South and North Islands of New Zealand and their subsequent trip to Patagonia and having a go around Cape Horn. So I have to apologize as my introduction to Fee and James in the last episode had an incorrect pronunciation of their last name. It's spelled C-O-R-F-E, but it's pronounced Corf. The E is silent. So Fee and James Corf are going to join us today. And we're going to hear about what Fee describes as the best day ever in a boat and the moment that is likely their scariest ever too. They are a fascinating team and a really fun interview. So sit back and relax and enjoy today's episode with Fee and James. Hello, Fee and James. Thank you for joining me today. Hello. Hello. So tell us a little bit about yourselves. Where are you from? Well, currently we are, we're based in the Lake District, both working in the outdoor industry. Uh, but we, we both grew up down south, actually, quite a way away. All right. So what do you do in the outdoor industry? So um, I work with the Outward Bound Trust, which is a, a charity in the UK and across the world that deals with young people and getting them to, to learn through the wild. And, uh, and I'm a... a a paddle sports coach uh, up here in Cumbria. Uh, I work for a company called Wild River and I deliver coaching in sea kayak, whitewater, canoe and a range of professional qualifications as well. All right, so so tell us uh, how you got your start as paddlers. Let's go with James first. Um, so uh, we actually, it's the same story for both of us because we met in the Isle of Man where we were trainees at an outdoor center called the, the Venture Center. And there we kind of taught each other how to paddle. So um, in the Isle of Man, there's not much white water or anything else. So it is predominantly sea kayaking if you want to do anything interesting. So that's kind of where we, we started the ball rolling. And then we moved to Lake District and went to university here. And that's when we started getting into to white water. So we, we're kind of quite all forms of paddling we're re- really big fans in. But it was we kind of had to kind of teach ourselves because we didn't really have a lot of money to spend on coaching and stuff. So it was a lot of just putting ourselves in places and situations to work out how it, how, how it all works. So Fee, and, uh, and how did you, the two of you, really develop your skills to the strength that you're at to be able to do these huge expeditions? I could say trial and error uh, played a big factor. When we were kind of younger in university, we we would just go out in kind of the, the wildest conditions that we could find and just kind of learn through pushing the boundaries, pushing each other and seeing what was possible. And it was really good to have each other to kind of bounce off and push each other on. We kind of seemed to do more training than most of our kind of peers at that stage. Like um, we'd be like popping off to the Calf of Man, which was like a small island off the Isle of Man before work. Um, to do practice our rescue skills when most people were just you know having their croissant in the morning or whatever so so we kind of both had that drive and that's probably why we kind of uh, got together as well to be honest um, because we had that same urge to do stuff so you're real diligent about uh, about working on those skills and getting yourselves yeah. to that level yeah definitely mm, definitely Excellent, excellent. So you've had some pretty incredible expeditions, and they're all major in their own right, and each could fill its own episode. But uh, let's start talking a little bit about your New Zealand expeditions. Um, Fee, can you give us a little rundown of the South Island? So yeah, that was our, our first big expedition, which was it was quite a full-on first expedition, to be honest. Uh, the idea came to us when we were at university. 
we were studying modules about big expeditions and we just got really inspired and thought, right, what's the, what's the wildest thing that we could possibly do when we leave university? And the idea of paddling around the entirety of the South Island came to us. So we did kind of a little bit of planning, got in touch with the few people that have done that trip. And before we knew it, we had managed to kind of get ourselves and our stuff to New Zealand and completed the trip in three months, which was absolutely incredible. And I mean, we learned a lot. We learned a lot on that trip. So most people don't choose a 2000 plus kilometer expedition for their first one. What, what drove you to say that's the one and we're ready for that? <laughs> well, we, we, had, we had done some other expeditions. Like we paddled around like the Isle of Skye and Anglesey and Wales and all this kind of stuff. So we've done lots of UK based trips, but they were only like at max a week. And I think, I think people would agree. I think we both really wanted to kind of go off and have that. It's quite popular in the UK for people to go off to like New Zealand for like a, a gap year, shall we say, for like six months or a year and go work out there for a bit. And we kind of thought we'd do that first. And then we decided that, well, well why, why, why go somewhere to work when we could really just explore a place? Um, so I think that's where it kind of came from. So we obviously we <laughs> we've never been in a kayak for more than a week at a time. And then suddenly we were doing this. But I feel like me and Fee have always been those, the kind of people that w- wouldn't just do like the easy. We'd always be like, we could just do this and that would be okay. Or we can do the next level step up just because we've got a short attention span is what I always say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. And I think um, part of the lure was like the level of challenge was so big. It, it was properly a step into the unknown. Like when, when we set off from the, the Sumner Live Station, we genuinely didn't know whether we would make it back round and I ever finished the trip because it was kind of out of our league maybe at that point. Um, so the level of challenge, 100%. So how did you adapt from a week in a boat to three months in a boat? Well, I think, I don't know, Fee, do you actually know the answer to this? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we just kept going, basically. We, we split the, the trip, the 2,500 kilometers, into five separate kind of tripped in our mind so we had five 500 kilometer sections to kind of kick off as we went so that kind of made it more achievable it was kind of like right we'll just do this 500 kilometer trip and then if we feel good we'll do the next 500k and if we feel good we'll do the next 500k and we just kept going and yeah it was a little bit painful kind of adapting to that long in a kayak and lots of stores and lots of aches and pains but yeah we just kept going really and it, it worked part of it as well is that we were so motivated just by having an adventure that even though obviously it's got a big goal of you know paddling the 2500k and going around the whole island but actually it was very much that if we didn't do it we already told ourselves that we we knew that we might not be able to complete it so we already was expecting to fail but trying to plan for the best if that makes sense so it didn't really feel like it was a chore I suppose it was like well we're just gonna see what we can do so the that's an interesting approach, the 500-kilometer uh, chunks. Did you take a couple of days break in between each of those, or was it just a mental, we're just dividing it up into those 500? <laughs> just just mental divide up. Okay. No, definitely, when the weather was good, we paddled, and when the weather was bad, we didn't. And then sometimes when the weather was bad, yeah. we'd still paddle. So, uh. right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, me- mental checkpoints, really. So give us the, uh, the highs and the lows of that trip real quick. So the highs, and I think you'd agree with me, James, the high point was definitely the southwest stretch of the South Island, um, which is this big expanse called Fjordland. And it's just super, super remote. 
Uh, I think for most of it, we were kind of 200 to 300 kilometers from the nearest town, nearest road. So we just had this, this feeling of like being out there in the middle of nowhere on the edge of the world, like nothing between us and the Antarctic. And it just felt absolutely incredible. And along with that kind of remoteness, we only had a VHF radio, which meant we couldn't really communicate with anybody, couldn't really get any weather forecast. So that um, having to make decisions and read the weather and kind of be out there by ourselves was was that proper adventure that I think we kind of wanted. Yeah, for a low point, I suppose, on this trip was um, near the very top. Well, for me, anyway, maybe Fee's got a different one. But for the very top, there was this place called the Wanganui Inlet that we paddled into and because um, we knew there was some weather coming. And then we were stuck in this inlet for quite a few days. And I had like this random bug bite on my lip that got infected and I had to like cut it out with our pen knife and stuff. And we couldn't get any food or anything because we couldn't leave this little hut that we found in the middle of the woods that was just just like someone's personal fishing hut. And we were just stuck there for days, not knowing if we would ever be able to get out again. And then we got out and paddled along. We got to this place called Farewell Spit, which is, if you know New Zealand a bit, it's just like, how long is it for? About 50 miles? Maybe, maybe less than that? I don't know. Uh, um, yeah, 20, about 70k. 70k, yeah. Wherever it is anyway. It's just a long, sandy spit that goes out for ages and we kind of got out the inlet, landed on the sink and we were just stuck there again for like another two days getting battered by uh, like sandstorms constantly and stuff so so it was just that kind of only you know feeling like being stuck in like an inlet and then feeling like you've escaped and then being stuck again but then it was all great after that to be honest um yeah and yeah. that that farewell spit bit that james was talking about i remember it was um the country was in a full drought and because we we're on this sand spit there were no rivers anywhere uh we had to do this long walk to this this little kind of array of rocks by a cliff and we had to sit there for about half the day with our water bottle with just this one drop coming out of the cliff to get water to survive yeah. and that that was that was pretty grim that and and, and the annoying thing is if we you could carry a boat for 500 meters or a k i can't remember exactly what it is uh, overland and just miss out completely but that would feel a bit like cheating wouldn't it so so, so it was just like <laughs> it was within our grasp but not at the same time so yeah um <laughs> So the north, uh, so the South Island wasn't enough. Uh, so Paul, Paul Caffin and Tara Mulvaney threw down a challenge for you, and, and you had to take the take the bait, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah well, kind of. It's kind of funny because when we finished the South Island, we both said, "Right, that's it. Never, ever again are we doing a long sea pack trip." Just because everything hurt, we were covered in chafe. All we wanted was like a nice, warm room and not to be living in a tent anymore and then kind of like a year later all we could remember were the positives and the really really nice stuff about being on expedition and and then yeah the north island was born just like that yeah. the idea of going around it i'd say that um the south island was very much like a intrinsic motivation thing and our most recent trip was quite intrinsic as well because we just wanted to go out and experience something for us but it did feel this one definitely felt more like we wanted to prove something a bit more than the others a bit more kind of motivation just to complete it rather than going for the expedition itself i suppose <laughs> so what what did you anticipate being different about the north island and the south island well it's it's uh... slightly it's slightly less remote it's also got bigger surf uh, I think that's the main thing is the surf is much bigger, especially in the um, on the north uh, west coast. Um, the surf is like, well, it's 
huge, isn't it? For you? It's about ten, 10 to yeah. sixteen foot standard is is the surf that you'd have to come through on. So I think that was probably the main challenge that'd be bigger, and also it's slightly it's like two hundred k more what uh, more distance around it. I suppose though, when you're going to those numbers, two hundred k is not much really to to deal with. Is anything yeah. to add with that thing? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say it's um, it's definitely got one of the most technical coastlines I think that there is out there to paddle in a sea kayak. Um, like James said, with the west coast and the huge surf that are relentlessly breaking, uh, and two massive harbors that have some very very weird waters that are definitely quite hard to navigate past in a sea kayak. So we, we definitely anticipated that the level of challenge and the technical kind of aspect of our paddling and decision making would be a lot higher than in the North Island. Uh, but again, that, that challenge kind of lured us in and made us want to see, see if we could complete it, see if we could do it. I definitely remember there being a bit more rugged reefs as well around the North Island as well. There's a lot more shelves uh, that mm. stick out quite far out to sea. When they you obviously get that around every coast, but I, I I remember when we were doing our research, there was a lot more in the in the North Island. I remember paddling around a lot more further out to sea than we did in the South Island. But yeah. So tell us about some of the uh, some of the surf landings. You said twelve to sixteen foot surf. You've got to come through. How was that? Um, scary, but in in a good way. Um, it, it was kind of like we basically it's the main part where this it's always got surf all the way around the the North Island, but there's one one area of it which is the past New Plymouth to the very top, and um, that's where the big surf comes through. So the way that we had to minimise that really was that we were just pulling like eighty, if not more, k a day just to to minimize how many landings and launchings we'd have to do. And then it was like all day you'd be paddling with this going, oh God, I hope we find a little bit of shelter just because you'd see the waves like wrecking the cliffs and the, and the beach that you'd be paddling along going, well, I hope this little spit we saw would give us a little bit of a break. And normally you'd get there and the, the surf would definitely be at least cleaner, uh, even if it wasn't smaller. So then it was a lot of that kind of planning side of things where you just sit at the back for a few, like 10 minutes, just trying to see what we could see um, trying to work out when was the best time to, to shoot out and then the kind of once you start going because the surf kind of sticks out for like a k to if not more like k to 2k out to sea it's just that once you start going in you're kind of on that one-way trip and it's about kind of just dealing with it as it comes Um we had a bit of a competition to see uh, who, who had the most roles and uh, we both can't remember who who won that one or, or if it was a draw we can't quite remember <laughs> <laughs> but but it was definitely that kind of all the way through the day hoping that you get to a clean enough landing and then in the morning you know you'd have a nice sleep and then wake up before light and cook your porridge and, and get your boat down to the thing and then it was just standing there again for another 10 minutes just trying to see where 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 the different features were where where was the best place to attack and when was the best place to go um do you want to add anything Fee? um yeah i found it genuinely quite terrifying to be honest like i always had a a feeling of sickness in my stomach when I was about to launch in the morning and all through the day I'd be clocking how big the surf was and that stress would be building and building and building. And I mean, it was breaking on average on the big bits about a kilometre offshore with the outside, the big breakers. So, I mean, as a risk assessment, if something went wrong out there, if you mistimed it and you got nailed by one of those big back breakers and, you know, your spray deck popped and you came out of your boat, it would have been um, like a really, really serious situation. I mean, you wouldn't have been able to swim into shore. You wouldn't have been able to really rescue each other. So it was kind of like 
we'd done so much training in the surf and our rolls were bomber and we could time the waves and kind of understood it but there was always that element of you know it going wrong and knowing how serious it could have been out there but we we made it and it seemed like everything went to plan we had we had one landing that was exceptionally scary and exceptionally uh, sketchy but apart from that it seemed like our hard work and our hard training kind of paid off and everything was under control that was like the ones that you could be going in and you're surfing down a wave and then you see like a ginormous rock just randomly submerged out of the well unsubmerged out of the water and then you had to do some quick turns to to not get smashed up against it and stuff but yeah so let's hear a little bit about that you know sorry to bring up bad memories but uh the that particularly terrifying <laughs> uh surf landing it was on the the southeast coast actually and we'd been stuck for a couple of days in a place called Castleton. And basically the swell had been huge and there'd been a massive storm that had come through. Uh, and eventually the storm had passed and the forecast was reading three point something meters in the swell, but easing considerably through the day. So we kind of thought, well, that's a big swell to start off in. But by the end of the day, it should be it should be less than two meters. And that will kind of mean the surf should be within our ability. Um, and as we got on the sea, we kind of we launched out through the harbour, so it was a really easy launch, and we were out on the big swell. And it quickly became apparent that the swell was big, and the surf along the coast was absolutely gigantic. Like we were a long way offshore, uh, and all we could see all day was just this like haze of these massive waves, and you could see the back of them fold over as they break. And we were so far offshore, and I just kept thinking, right. Well, it's got to ease, it's got to ease, it's going to get less, it's going to get less, it's going to get less. And then we kind of had gone past the point of return that we kind of just had to keep going south because we didn't have that much time left in the day. And it didn't seem like the swell had eased at all. It was still absolutely gigantic. And eventually we'd been paddling for, I think it was 12, 13 hours nonstop that day. And we were kind of like, right, we we just have to land. Like, we, <laughs> it's going to be dark in a couple of hours. We have to get off the sea. There is genuinely no option. And that was a really terrifying thought, actually, kind of knowing that we had to go in through this gigantic, terrifying surf. Um, I think we were about, we were over two kilometers offshore when we started paddling in, which was a long way. And basically, we had this, it was like an offshore wind, maybe 10, 15 knots. And, and the sun was kind of shining straight offshore. So obviously that offshore wind was steepening the big waves up even more and kind of holding them up and making them dump even more feistily. And I had a, a GoPro filming actually when I came in and the, the entire GoPro like clip of my, my landing was, I think it was about 20 minutes long of just forward paddling. So it kind of proved that we were a long way offshore from the back. And I just, about timed it right in kind of a crux outbreaking zone like feeling my boat lift up and the waves break in front of me was genuinely terrifying but I managed to get myself in okay and James was coming second behind me and I remember standing on the beach and just looking at the size of James's kayak against these massive waves and seeing like a, a hill of water rise up and his boat was like so far away. And I was just thinking, oh my God, I hope he makes it in okay. But I think when, when you're sitting out the back there though and um, it's, it's raising up and you've got that offshore wind and it starts to break and you're just sitting there waiting for your time to kind of chase in behind it. 
and then the offshore wind was blowing that you'd also just be getting completely blinded by all the the water that was getting picked off the wave because it was just getting blown straight into your to, to your face um, and then kind of I remember when Fee was saying that she was watching me but I remember then paddling in and trying to sprint really quickly and then noticing there was a wave forming behind me and then it broke and then I was just like paddling really quickly knowing that the pile was coming towards me just hoping that the pile would diffuse a little bit by the time it got to me which luckily it did and then kind of as I said before you're kind of going in and then this ginormous boulder rock kind of thing just came out of nowhere and then you had to quickly like do a quick brace and try and charge to the beach and it was it was uh, definitely a very intimidating entry wasn't it yeah yeah and like in hindsight well even at the time I think that the size of those waves if you got it wrong could easily have broken our boats and it could have been like a horrific situation like horrific situation if it went wrong I kind of think that it was definitely down to like a lot of training that we'd done in the surf that kind of led us to being able to make those really quick subconscious decisions of when to sprint, when to come back. But I also think for that landing that we definitely had a degree of luck that kind of got us in safely. Definitely. So you had a lot of other uh, aspects to that trip. I know food was a challenge at one point and there was uh, one point going to, I think it was New Plymouth, that you had a a, six, a planned six-day paddle that turned out to be a little bit longer. And um, I won't go into too, too much detail or ask you to go into too much detail because you made a great movie on this trip and I'd love for people to be able to watch the movie and see all that detail. So how can people find the movie? Yeah, if you just go onto YouTube and search, uh, I think it's Into the Sea Expeditions North Island Circumnavigation. If you write those kind of things, it will it will come up, won't it, Fee? All right, and I will make sure I put uh, links to the, in the show notes to the yeah. movie as well, and um, I'll put that to your blog as well, and people can uh, can see that. But I don't want to ruin the surprise. I would like to make sure that people <laughs> have the opportunity to see that firsthand for themselves. So give me one other thing about this trip your uh, your research you mentioned uh, research earlier james what, what kind of research did you do and where did you do that research for the uh, north island so so, so we've got um uh, we, we, we in the south island we we met up with tara mulvaney and paul Cathin, uh, and we, we, we were in pretty good terms with both of them uh, so they they obviously have loads of information about everything they've got the more recent information from tara who obviously wasn't that long ago when she did her trip and obviously paul has been paddling the coasts around there for years um so so they were really good um and giving us information about sticky bits or great landings potentially or even going through the inlets that fee was talking about where where you might um, best attack it also we had like a very old pilot of new zealand um that kind of told us a bit about the tides and and everything and and just kind of searching on the internet there's also a lady called red who paddled around both the islands of new zealand but she did it in a very different way like she did it uh, in a kayak that doesn't have like a spray deck or something because she, uh, and she stays in the camper van each night but she was still doing it every day so she gave her and her she doesn't I, I, I think I'm right in saying that she doesn't know how to roll very well so so she was very much looking for the really good landings and really nice safe spots so so actually having someone that's very cautious is actually a really good resource because that means you know that that place will probably be fine um, and, and in those conditions so so that and then um also in some of the things uh, fee actually uh, and i co contacted the coast guard and some of them they were quite helpful and sometimes they were like no don't do that that sounds stupid why 
<laughs> uh, don't don't kayak over the that that inlet. It's really dangerous. But obviously, to get around it, we still had to do it anyway. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So so mostly it was um, through others, and I think that's a a big tip about all of our paddles. Really, um, there's so many people out there that are, are willing to help and give time. I suppose to to help people out. So yeah. All right. Well, maybe somebody is uh, thinking about an expedition of their own to either the North or South Island, and maybe they're listening to this episode and. Uh, and this can be their inspiration. So Definitely, definitely. So your most recent trip was Patagonia. And uh, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that one. And I'll start with, I read your blog and I loved the hand-drawn pictures. So I'm guessing there's more to that story. So tell us a little bit about that first. Well, well um, I'm, not a great, I'm not a great drawer, to be honest, or painter, <laughs> but... Um, sitting in that we had a lot of, in patagonia if you know anything about patagonia the weather's pretty crazy so there was quite a few times that we'd be stuck in our tent so so i started doodling and and then because our camera so basically we before we started the trip we had lots of bad luck up until we got in the sea like we had quite a lot of our kits stolen whilst in chile including our cameras and stuff so we managed to buy a new camera uh, but it wasn't waterproof so then eventually it died. Uh, so the only way that I thought I could um, <laughs> capture the moments was to do little drawings and stuff. And it was like keeping me amused in these sometimes multiple days in a soggy tent, really. Um, so, so yeah. So uh, I'm going to turn to Fee. Fee, tell us a little bit about the trip from you kind of get the rundown. Where'd you start and give us uh, the, the path of the paddle? Yeah, so um, I guess. Starting from where did our inspiration for paddling the length of Patagonia come from? Like I mentioned earlier, um, a part of the South Island that we both kind of enjoyed and remember as the, the most powerful, brilliant part of the trip was that southwest part of the South Island, the Fjordland, where it was just so remote, uh, no, no sign of any civilization, civilization at all. So we wanted to find somewhere somewhere in the world that was as remote or even better, more remote than that part of New Zealand and kind of get that same feeling of just being out there, having an adventure by ourselves. So I think the idea of paddling down Patagonia came to us by scrolling aimlessly around Google Maps on the computer. We were kind of just looking for oh, what's the most remote part of the world that we could potentially paddle our sea kayaks down um, and we ended up zooming in on patagonia uh, and if you look at patagonia on a map it's just this matrix of islands and fjords and just wilderness that doesn't have any roads any towns kind of in it at all for most of it you're you're 400 kilometers from the nearest town nearest road potentially even more at places so so we wanted to find the most remote place we could get to um, and as our planning progressed we, we bought a road map of South Chile and stuck it on our living room wall. Uh, and then we just kind of started designing a route all the way down through the matrix of fjords, finishing, hopefully, with a, a circumnavigation of the Cape Horn because uh, it kind of looked like a cool way to finish the trip. So we, we eventually decided to start from Puerto Montt, which is quite a big city. And if you look at that on a map, it kind of that's where it looks like civilization kind of ends, where it gets quite hard to get to any roads from there. Uh, and the route just kind of wound down through the fjords. We got to to a part called Laguna San Rafael, where we decided to portage our kayaks 
few kilometers over this bit of land to get to a river to get us to the other side of the sea to save like a, a 500 kilometer detour to the outer coast which I'm not sure is possible to see kayak. Looking at the weather forecast, the winds and the swells and the lack of landings that go around there. Uh, to this day, I don't think that's been sea kayak. So we decided to, to try our bets by portaging through the middle bit of land. And the route kind of carried on down. There were two food resupplies, one at Porto uh, Asin and one at Porto Natal's. Uh, and then obviously we thought we would pop round Cape Horn to finish the trip down in Ushuaia at the very, very bottom end of Chile. Well, that's Argentina. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we the actually country. did finish in Chile. We, we, fin- we, we, we actually changed to be Porter Williams at the end. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So, so Cape Horn. Um, so you had a, an experience going around Cape Horn, which uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, um, basically, it's quite many faceted because on the way when we were getting to Cape Horn and we we got to the turning where you can turn off to it, and we at that point we're about fifty kilometres to um, Porter Williams, which would be our end point where we could get the ferry back up the coast and then fly home. We were actually starting to we'd been literally wearing wet clothes and everything was breaking for about a few weeks and we were getting quite low morale wise because you know it's a very long time to be out there. Um, and the weather forecast just looked dire because this this one we actually did have a, a Garmin inReach thing so we were getting uh, weather forecasts every day and it didn't look like there was much gaps in the weather uh, so we decided that we were kind of we, we'd get a little bit closer and then we'll have a little think about what we'd do so it was no sure thing that we were going to do it so we turned up the little channel leading to Cape Horn and literally getting to the other side, we kind of got blown off the water. The ginormous vortexes of wind just came out of the fjords. And we ended up like kind of almost crash landing on this steep beach. And there was like this derelict um, uh, barn there that was uh, um, that was last inhabited, I think, probably in like the 70s. And there was random bits of newspapers talking about boat wrecks on the, on the Cape and stuff. And we spent our time fixing our tent, our dry suits and our boats and stuff. And just looking at the weather forecast, and it was just getting more and more and more dire. And I was getting a bit uh, low in motivation, and and Fee was very much like, "Oh, shall we? Shall we, I? I think we should try and get keep crawling up to see if we get a bit closer." Until we kind of got to the point where we could see the Williston Islands, and then we got this weather forecast that was just like, um, "Oh yeah, you've you've got like a four day window." The weather forecast said where the weather's gonna be good. And I suppose it's a part of the, the, the sea that you don't really want to mess around in. But at that point, we were both just like, right, well, it's now or never. We could get around this in four days. So the next morning we got up before light and got on the sea and started crossing. And as we were crossing, there were like whales like swimming around us. And then there was this, we got to the to the, the first land by the Isle of Grave, Gravy. We always say Isle of Gravy because we can't read Spanish words. Um, um, there was just this big tide that's coming off because it's really hard to find any tidal information. Um, so we kind of had to then kind of read the water as we went rather than plan for it. Uh, so it was quite a lot of angling our boat against the, 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 the flow so we could get in close. And then we started following the, the, the whole set of the Wollaston Islands. And the sea conditions there were just crazy. Like the swell was a couple of metres for sure, smashing up against these like beautiful cliffs. And there was just the amount of bird wildlife was crazy. It was literally, I've never seen so many birds in one place, like albatrosses and shearwaters and stuff just flying around. And then the next day, 
was the day we went round Cape Horns. We literally had one day to cross, get to the point to get to the Isle of Hornos. And we were about to make the cross into Isle of Hornos, but the weather forecast wasn't what it was supposed to, and it was probably gusting easily 30 to 40 knots. And we didn't, that's not the kind of weather that we'd think would be good to go around Cape Horn. So, so at that point, we kind of decided to throw in the towel and uh, just head back because we had such a short window to, to do this in. Then after like 10 minutes later, Fee was just like, do you think we can do it? And I was like, well, if we do it, now's got to be the time. This is our last chance. So if we turn back now, it's now or never. If we don't turn back, we can't, we can't do it. So then we both decided just to cross. And as we started crossing, the wind did actually drop down quite significantly. So it was manageable. Uh, and we got to North Cape, which is just like these ginormous black pyramids of rocks, really, uh, with big boomers everywhere. And it was just like the amount of clopotis and stuff was crazy. It was actually really wild. Um, and then we went around the corner and it was just these ginormous, probably 10 foot, 20 foot waves. I don't know what it was because we were very far offshore, but the swell felt very big, just pounding this giant bay. Then we went around the corner, we could see Cape Horn and it was just really surreal because one, we were at the end of the end of the world, isn't it? It's like the last part before Antarctica. Um, but all like for about 200 meters offshore was completely in a wind shadow and then out of that 200 meters it was like you'd, you'd be in antarctica before you knew it kind of thing so we managed to stay really close and actually it was really calm by the cape so it was this thing that we're building up in our head the whole time of it being like the most scary dangerous thing in the world when obviously it would be if you went 200 meters offshore but where we were we were just like skimming around and it was just really calm and nice and looking at the birds and seeing the there was like loads of these um valleys with like clouds whispering out out to sea and stuff and it just felt really surreal and then the next day we actually we couldn't paddle and then it was literally two days afterwards that we managed to do two really big days and we we managed to finish or was it two two and a bit days i'd say two and a bit days but yeah um so it all worked out in the end but it was definitely this ginormous experience of it will we won't we and then eventually we just committing and and then it pulled off and we managed to get it done so that day that you uh went around cape horn what was your your trip distance for the day um i think that was quite a big day we were definitely we were on the water for about 13 maybe to 14 hours i can't remember the distance but it was probably about 70 plus k we had quite a lot of headwind to deal with at the end after we rounded the cape before we could actually actually land. So, yeah, I'm going to estimate about 70k, something like that. Long day. So with a long day like that and with all the uh, the, the winds and currents and, and everything else that's going on, tell us about your risk assessment process for that day. For the entirety of the trip, we had kind of been risk assessing almost everything constantly. It's kind of like... Every time we're on the sea, we're always looking, right, we could land there. If the wind does that, we could land there. If the swell comes in, we could land there. If this happens, we'll turn around and go back there. So on the day, we were kind of just constantly tuned in to these micro changes in the wind and the swell and everything to kind of do, do the risk assessing the best we could. Now, in the morning when we were actually kind of planning of what the risks were for the day... Some of these risks were beyond anything that like kind of either of us or most sea kayakers would kind of actually have on their risk assessment. So we were kind of thinking there there was a chance that this storm that was forecast for the middle of the night 
could have come in six to eight hours earlier and there was a possibility that there could have been like a, a 60 knot gale crisis come out of nowhere as we were going round this Cape Horn kind of crux point. And in that case, there was kind of, we kind of thought, well, if that does happen, what could we actually do? And the only plausible kind of way to deal with that risk is we kind of thought, well, we'll just crash land on one of these uh, reefy beaches or by the cliffs and hop out of our boat and hope for the best. And that was kind of the only way that we could have dealt with this um, this extreme risk. It sounds absolutely bonkers. And there's probably people listening to this thinking, oh, my God. But in our heads at that time, we kind of thought, well, do you know what? This is a risk that could potentially be there. This is the only way we can deal with this. Um, it, it's so, worth yeah, noting. some of our risk assessing was a little bit out there. Well, it's it's worth noting, though, before you can even do this trip, you need to have like a really extensive risk assessment because the Chilean Navy uh, expect you to do like a full report and all this kind of stuff before going. So even though all this stuff is right, quite a lot of the risk assessment in our heads has already been semi done because we did it sitting in Cumbria in front of a laptop um, like six months before. Uh, thinking about what we will paddle in, what we won't. And actually, to be honest, quite a lot of times we'd we'd know we'd be breaking our risk assessment that we sent to the Navy, but it's kind of not condoning that, but I'm just saying that's just <laughs> realistic, isn't it? You know, sometimes you say you're going to do something, but actually the draw to get round Cape Horn was such a big deal that actually, even though we set off in not the best conditions, we had a strong belief from somewhere that it would be okay. Uh, <laughs> So tell us about the magic of, I mean, there's not that many people that have the opportunity to go around Cape Horn in a large ship, let alone go around it in a kayak. So Fee, tell us a little bit about the magic of that moment when you rounded Cape Horn. Oh, do you know what? It was genuinely incredible. And like to this day, I still look back on that day as one of my best days ever sea kayaking. I think it just had kind of all of the elements that make an amazing day out on the water. It had it had a high level of risk, um, which kind of kept our adrenaline throwing the whole day. It had absolutely incredible like scenery and wildlife the entire way around. And it also had that um, the level of remoteness that we were literally out there by ourselves. God knows where the next closest boat was. Uh, to our left was Cape Horn and to our right was Antarctica. Um, and then with that offshore wind that James said was blowing straight to Antarctica, just kind of kept us really, really high up in that really high awareness adrenaline phase. Um, so I think it just had all the elements that made an absolutely magical day out on the water. Um, and it was kind of, as well as that, it was um, it was a goal that we had kind of dreamt up like a year before. And it had been it had been pinned on our living room wall for almost a year that we'd be walking past and looking at that point on on Chile and thinking, as every time I walked past it, I'd find myself thinking, God, I wonder what it's like to paddle around Cape Horn. I wonder if we'll ever actually make it round Cape Horn. So it, it also had that kind of accomplishing a massive dream as well as all the other elements that it made feel so special. And that was just such a such a great feeling. Well, and all all of our trips, we've also got like this. Uh, we always bring uh, a road map with us, which obviously in Chile is quite a small, not many roads on it to be honest. But like uh, we we take that with us on all our trips, and we mark off every day where we are. So it's kind of like for, ever since Porto Mont, we've been ticking off putting across every day where we've got to, and 
going, oh, wouldn't it be really nice if we get to Cape Horn? And it was always this thing that we never thought potentially it would happen because obviously I had to get back to get to work, same with Fee, that if we got close and we didn't have time um, because the weather was bad, uh, then it might never have happened. And actually, you can never, in, in Chile, you can never, well, in Patagonia, you can never really decide what the weather's going to be doing. It's a it's, it's good chance that it's going to be against you quite a lot of the time, uh, which it definitely was. But finally getting to that point, knowing that actually we had time and we had this small weather window, it was going to that accomplishment feeling that Fee was saying. I, I, I'd say it's, it beat any of the other mm. ones we've ever done, wouldn't you say, Fee? Yeah, like it just felt like a, co- a culmination, felt like a culmination of just kind of everything that the two of us had gone through together in a sea kite just kind of came to this massive moment as we were just sitting there looking at each other in awe of like, oh my God, what have we done round in this cape? And I do remember just having this feeling of like everything that we've done together in a sea kite and all those hours and hours and days and days on the sea and everything just kind of flashed through my head and I just kind of had this quite emotional moment actually of just like, wow, James, look where we are and what we've done and wow. (laughs) Yeah, how could you not, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I noticed on your map that it shows Cape Horn as a detour. So what, I guess, what what I'm trying to wrap my head around here is how do you go and plan a trip to Patagonia and think, maybe we won't bother doing that well it, again it just it, it goes back to what i just said really i suppose it's it's really hard to say that you're going to have the right weather to do it so if we go into that the risk assessment side if you've got like a, a month or two weeks or uh, of bad weather then you're not really you know realistically it, it might not happen because we we had timings that we had to make we had to you know make sure we're back out, out of the country and moving home so we can go back to work and stuff so uh, doing a expedition in Patagonia that's um it was a what well, it was 2700k total with with um Cape Horn so you know that's a long distance to go with some pretty sporadic weather because actually we went during their summer months which i believe is the most stormy weather so it's warmer obviously but it's definitely got worse wind um, when if you went in the winter time it's generally quite settled for wind so so that's why it's the detour i think it was always just setting up in our mind that if we got to the bottom and realized that actually our flight isn't like a week and we still need to because it takes a couple of days just to get the ferry to be able to fly somewhere to get back to santiago so it was kind of like just setting ourselves up for just in case the weather's been against us or maybe we weren't as strong as we thought that we could back away without feeling too upset i believe is the reason we put that in yeah i think like in the back of our minds we both knew that we really, really, really wanted to do Cape Horn and that would be such a great way to finish off an incredible trip. But uh, I also think we were both strongly aware of the hundreds of things that could have stopped us in our tracks before we even got to Cape Horn. Or like James said, there's many things that could have actually stopped us en route to Cape Horn doing it. So yeah, we, we had to be realistic, I think, with our planning for that part. Well, excellent risk planning. So Yep. Well, as I said before, we like all of our equipment was broken at this point. So that was one of the reasons why we almost <laughs> didn't like our tent, like in this uh, 
uh, barn that we were stuck in for, I can't remember, four or five days. Like, we actually saw our tent apart to rebuild it. It was like a Frankenstein tent by the end of it. Um, and, like, all of our dry suits were leaking and, and all this kind of stuff. So it was definitely, we definitely were cutting, we were scout, scout, skirting the line of what was appropriate and what wasn't. But um, I think we were all, I think if we had yeah, time, we were like always it. getting going to complete it to be honest i feel like me and fee were just telling ourselves it was a detail that we didn't have to do <laughs> it kind of felt almost like a an incredibly bad omen at one point when we were in this barn <laughs> and i think our our last tent pole snapped and we just looked at it like this is a bad omen and then and then another tent pole snapped and just everything in a couple of days broke and it kind of felt like it was an omen <laughs> well that that, that, that and the newspaper board. articles we, we ignored all those signs the old oh, the old yeah. newspaper <laughs> articles about ships crashing on cape horn and all this kind of stuff it's just like why are we even here <laughs> but... <laughs> well it certainly does sound like a proper adventure so so there has to be another map on the wall by now. So what's next for you? You know what? There, there isn't at the moment. There, there isn't a map at the moment. We've got loads of things we'd, we'd like to do. Uh, so we, I think we've always talked about going to Alaska would be really cool. Uh, we've also talked about potentially paddling around the whole of the UK and Ireland. But at the moment, there's no firm, firm plans, really. No, no. At the moment, there is currently a, a gap on our wall that is mapless that has yet to be filled. So... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, not too sure, but watch this space, I guess. <laughs> I'm certain it won't take too long for uh, for that space to be filled. So tell us a little bit about the kit that you use for your trips. We're very lucky that we have a, a brilliant deal with Nigel Dennis from Sea Kayaking UK. Uh, and he supports us with his really, really amazing high quality kit. He, if you haven't heard of the boats that he makes, he actually designs special three-piece sea kayaks. Uh, that we've actually taken on every single trip and expedition we've done. So these kayaks are able to split into three pieces, stern, bow, and cockpit. So we can essentially take them in two bags on the plane and go wherever we want. James paddles a Nigel Dennis Explorer, and I paddle um, a Nigel Dennis Pilgrim Expedition. And for every trip that we've been on, these boats have been like kind of hit every single need of a high quality, robust expedition boat that you can even take on a plane. And they, they hold up in the rough stuff really well. Paddles, we use Celtic paddles, a variety of different paddles we take with us on the trip. Spray decks, we use Wetman equipment, spray decks that were fantastic. Anything else, James? Um, yeah, I think it's worth noting that the um, the kayaks we use, you can get three piece, obviously, but they also, if you if people don't know, that you can get them single piece as well, which is good because it does add weight. Obviously, having them in three parts, but yeah, we use Wetman equipment, uh, which is all of these companies that we use are also UK, uh, local, uh, British made stuff, which is great if you want to buy. If you're from the UK, and you want to buy uh, local stuff, but um, mm. apart from that, that's. That's it, really, isn't it? We've, we, you know, for 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 the main kit, the rest of it is just odds and ends that we pick up through our work, anyway. So, we use Palm Sea Kayak dry suits actually for the Patagonia. Oh, that's expedition. true. Yeah, and we were surprised at how amazingly robust these dry suits were, uh, and they they properly kept us warm and dry for the whole three months around Patagonia. They were definitely um, getting really, leaky really by the end, there. but but for the distance that we travelled, they definitely did bit, their job. Yeah. yeah. So 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 
yeah, so I'd say the the palm yeah. uh, dry suit is actually really good. Well, it's quite a testament to the boats too that they've made it through all three trips uh, still intact. Well, well, to be honest, the we we had a different boat for Patagonia, so the, okay. we might as well say, but but we we <laughs> we had we had the same boats for the South and North Island, and we actually sold them in the North Island, but they they um they were still perfect when we sold them. It was just you know we we thought it was time to get an upgrade, <laughs> but yeah. So what's your one best kit purchase under a hundred euro? Hmm. That's a good one. Give me a moment uh, to think about that one. Sure. That's a good one. So yeah, I've got a Seed to Summit roll mat that I think is really amazing. In the uh, South and North Island, we used to take the Firmarest ones, which are actually quite bulky and quite heavy. And this one packs down to literally nothing. And it's really, really light. Uh, I was quite worried that it'd be quite flimsy, but throughout the whole trip, and Patagonia is really renowned for its thorns and thistles. Actually, they they didn't really. They, I think we got one little puncture, but obviously, it's really easy to repair as well. And I think that's a real important thing as well. Is just having a comfortable night's sleep when you're paddling like twelve hours a day is pretty important. So I'd say mm. we got that. We got that for under hundred. You said euros, but I'm going to use English quid. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I so, so that that would be my thing is get a good night's sleep. <laughs> All right. How about you, Fee? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I found really really useful on this trip that we didn't bring on other trips actually was um, we bought um, a barometer. So it measured the pressure in the air, so it, we could see whether the the air pressure was rising or falling. And when our, our the weather forecasts were like dodgy at the best of times in Patagonia. So that allowed us to kind of really tune into and kind of picture if the low pressures are coming in or getting further away or if a high pressure is building. And actually, we found it to be amazingly accurate, like more accurate than the weather forecast as to when the wind was going to get better and when it was going to drop. Um, sadly, that broke midway through the trip. But uh, up until then, it was uh, for a remote expedition piece of equipment. It was like genuinely fantastic. Really good. Brilliant. Well, how can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions about uh, any of your expeditions or would like to uh, uh, take advantage of some coaching? Well, firstly, on the coaching side, like I said, I work as a full-time paddle sports coach here in the Lake District, and I run an amazing variety of sea kayaking and whitewater courses. The details of the company that I, I coach and I work for are Wild River, and you can find details on the internet on www.wildriver.co.uk if you fancied some some practical coaching or if you just wanted to get in touch uh, with myself or James about maybe if you want to paddle some expeditions or just for a chat you can reach us on email my email address is fiona.corf92 at gmail.com um, yeah, as for me, I, I don't really do much coaching. I can do coaching, so but I'm actually work full time, as I said, working in education field. So um, generally, I'd say fees much better trained for that kind of thing. But you can contact me through james.corf at outwardbound.org.uk. All right, and I will make sure I put uh, links to those in the show notes, and I'll also uh, add a link to your blog, and we'll make sure we get a link to the movie so folks can see that as well. So. Keep in, keep in contact with you. Um, one final question that I have, and I ask this of all of our guests, and that is, James and Fee, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? 
uh, one of the people that inspired us both kind of from the start of our wild, wild ideas about paddling around Zealand is the, uh, the fairly well-known and famous Tara Mulvaney, who has paddled around the South and the North Island of New Zealand. Uh, and she did that, that solo and she's a local Kiwi and she's done um, since then a range of amazing and inspiring sea kayaking expeditions. Yeah, I, I, I'd uh, go on the New Zealand theme a bit more, and, and if you could ever get in contact with Paul Caffin again, obviously he's, uh, we called him the granddaddy of sea kayaking, and he called us the kids. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I, I, I definitely both those those people are, are really inspirational people. Um, so yeah, definitely. Well, excellent. I will uh, take the opportunity to reach out to both Tara and Paul, and look forward to getting them on the show. So, Fee and James, it's been wonderful speaking with you. I loved hearing uh, the, the information and the details about your, both your North Island, South Island, the Patagonia trips, uh, rounding Cape Horn, uh, and all the adventures that you've had along the way. And I really appreciate uh, your time with me today. And thank you very much. No, thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much, too. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, power to the paddle, is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Wow, those are some proper adventures for sure. Fee and James really know how to weave a story. I loved their descriptions of the environment in which they paddled, and I could picture myself sitting alongside them in a boat. And speaking of pictures, check out their blog to see James' hand-drawn artwork, And make sure you take the time to check out their YouTube movie, Into the Sea, the North Island. You'll find a link to that in the show notes, as well as a few other links. A big thank you goes out to Will Copestake for the introduction to Fee and James. You can hear Will on episode 22, where we talked about his year-long trip, Macare to Monroe. Our next episode is going to feature another referral, this time from John Willisey, who was featured just recently in episode 33. We're going to have a chat with Mick O'Mara about paddling around Ireland. So thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.